Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 56, for November 4th, 2007, with your host, Tom Olsack. You can find the information covered in our episodes at my blog, Adventures in Security, at ittoolbox.com. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcast at adventuresinsecurity.com. In this episode, I'm discussing the five most popular posts on my blog last week, including tips on suspect interviewing techniques, an Irishman rescued after being really, really naive, a video on rainbow table password cracking, a 60-second crack on WEP, or web encryption, and in our first segment, finding and dealing with rogue employees. John Espenshede has um, an article in Computer World in which he describes five steps for hiring employees into sensitive positions and five steps for identifying and firing rogue employees in those positions. It's an interesting read. And uh, for anyone who's had to um, hire security personnel or personnel who had to hire uh, handle sensitive data knows that it's very difficult during an interview or even doing background checks to really get a handle on how well or how how conscientious someone is going to be in handling your data. Um, there was a recent inter- uh, article that I saw just today that uh, that shows that almost, well, it, over 50% of all data leakage problems are caused by employees mishandling data, either being careless or just not thinking about what they're doing with the data, not intentionally trying to uh, expose it to the outside world. Um, In his article, uh, John says that it's tough to find effective and ethical people to fill positions of influence or power, whether the role is that of security guard for a convoy out of the green zone or a security administrator for critical systems. Missteps can directly lead to the death of innocent people, and intentional abuse is the stuff of nightmares. Worse, it's the people who really want power and influence are most likely to mishandle it. I don't have a line on ways to see into other people's minds and evaluate their current and future ethical capacity and personal risk factors, but here are a few steps you can take to spot an internal danger before much damage is done. The first step that John writes about is to set clear goals. Um, his He asserts that dropping authority into idle hands and corruption per, from power happens fast. So you need to make sure that people have clearly defined goals that they are to meet every day when they walk into the office and they're not sitting around just wondering, ah, gee, what can I play with next? Number two is to set clear prohibitions. This is a good place to put your policies to work. Make sure people know exactly what they can and cannot do. Check the work results. That's number three. In other words, measure the outcome of work processes. And don't Take someone's word about whether goals have been met and methods are actually being followed or improvements made. Look at it. Eyeball it. The fourth step to identify a potentially rogue employee is go and watch how they work. Make sure that you actually, besides just looking at the metrics, go and see in how they work. For security personnel, it's for physical security personnel, make sure that they're actually taking the time to do things right. Could be that the metrics are just showing you that people have been lucky up to this point. The other thing you want to do is to see how they deal with, with your users. Make sure that they're 
not only helping them to do the right thing, but having them understand why they should be doing the right thing. People understanding why are much more apt to do what they need to do to protect your data. And number five is to sit back and listen. It's not just about having going out and asking questions, but it's also about listening. Listen to what people are saying. Listen to what their coworkers are saying. Listen to what other managers are saying about the efforts that are being made to protect your facilities and your data. This is a great resource to determine whether or not the right things are being done, said, looked at, etc. And I highly recommend you go read the article. Uh, there are five the five steps to uh, how to deal with a rogue employee. I'll let you take a look at that in, the, in this article. This is a five-page article. It's very well done. And um, you, again, you can get to it uh, from a link in my blog post. In this next segment entitled Crack Web in Less Than 60 Seconds, it's no secret that for the past six years, web encryption has been a weak security control for wireless networks. However, things have just gotten worse. Now, I want to stop here for a second and let you know that this post originally appeared in April of 2007, but it's been getting uh, some re renewed interest since then, and I never covered this in a podcast, so here we go. Um, researchers at the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany have written a paper in which they claim to be able to crack 104-bit web encryption in 60 seconds or less. Eric Tews, Ralph Philipp Weinmann, and Andrei Pishkin wrote that by expanding on the use of packet capture and reinjection techniques, originally documented by Andreas Klein, that as few as 40,000 packets are required to crack a 104-bit encryption key. The one caveat they mentioned in their paper was that this is an active attack easily recognized by an intrusion detection device. Once the key is cracked and authentication is not required to connect to the target wireless access point, the attacker has full access to the target network. Organizations that employ wireless encryption and that must use WEP, and this should be a last resort, should immediately ensure the use of an authentication mechanism such as 802.1x. 802.1x is an IEEE standard that requires a device to authenticate before allowing it to connect to a network, wireless or otherwise. This won't stop the capture of packets transmitted via RF, but it will help protect the network from general network access. This should be backed up with intrusion detection devices and documented, tested incident response processes. The next post is entitled, Rainbow Cracking Video, You Should Be Very Afraid. I'm sure there are a lot of people who believe their passwords are much more secure in current releases of the Windows operating systems than they were in previous releases. After all, password cracking tools that use rainbow tables are particularly successful when used against the legacy landman password hashers. These trusting souls might be surprised to learn that any password that is 14 characters or less in length might, be ver might very well be represented by a landman hash. In this video, obtained from the WatchGuard.com site, um, they introduce the viewer to the basics of landman authentication and the ease with which landman passwords can be cracked using rainbow technology. This is a really informative video, and I encourage you to look at it. Uh, it can be reached through the link at my podcast, or I'm sorry, at my blog. And also at the blog post, I've got a, a link to instructions for shutting off landman support in Windows and more information on how passwords work in Microsoft operating systems. 
Many of you may already have uh, the uh, Landman password hashing turned off. It was uh, inserted into the uh, later releases of Windows so that it would be backward compatible with Windows 95 and Windows 98. Uh, those of you who don't have that, uh, have those operating systems in your network today, feel free to turn that off. And in fact, like I said, many of you have probably already done it, but this is some follow up and it doesn't hurt to go back and check and make sure that somebody didn't turn it on by, uh, or inadvertently turn it on during a reconfiguration or a uh, uh, server upgrade. The next post is entitled, Irish Man Rescued After Being Really, Really Naive. The headline reads, Irish Man Rescued After Falling for 419 Scam. For those of you who aren't familiar with the 419 scam, it's it's actually asking for money in advance to be included in some kind of quick uh, money-making scheme, like the ones coming out of Nigeria. However, his, the, this guy's rescue wouldn't have been necessary if, once he realized he'd been scammed, he would have simply chalked it up to being gullible. Gullible in the wake of countless warnings to be cautious of online offers that appear to be too good to be true. This would actually be funny if it wasn't so sad. The following is from an article in the Register by Dan Gooden that was entitled, Irishman Rescued After Failing or Falling for 419 Scam. I quote, an Irish man who was kidnapped after fall, f- falling for an email fraud scam was rescued when police raided a hotel in the capital of Ghana, where he was being held captive. James Lafferty, 49, from Innes, County Clare, had been held hostage for about five days while kidnappers demanded money for his safe return. He was freed after police received a tip. Lafferty visited the West African country last week in an attempt to recover money he had paid the email scammers. The kidnappers took him hostage, then contacted his family and business associates in Ireland and demanded more money. And in the final segment, uh, entitled Some Tips on Suspect Interviewing Techniques, we're going to walk through a um, some uh, recommendations that were uh, written about in an article entitled How to Interview an Insider Threat Suspect that was written by Kelly Jackson Higgins for Dark Reading, and it was dated 31 October of this year. And interviewing is an art. Knowing how to read the interviewee and what questions to ask to draw out needed information comes with training and practice. And here are some tips you need to get started. Quote, It's all about knowing how to interpret nonverbal cues and language patterns as well as ways to deliver in-time questions to get the most out of a response, the experts say. These are tips and techniques that information security people probably have never learned, says Don Coates, Director of Investigative and Compliance Solutions for Continuum Worldwide. Security pros may not necessarily see it as an interview, but every time you're asking questions, you're in fact gathering, you're in a fact gathering interview, he says. The no-scratching habit, for example, is likely a physiological response to anxiety. The blood vessels dilate, stretching the skin and thus causing it to itch, Coates explains. Other red flags are fidgeting, continuous throat clearing, excessive sweating, or covering parts of their mouth, or studying their fingernails or cuticles, he says. They may be sighing or yawning a lot, which may be done to a, a lack of oxygen may be due to a lack of oxygen. When the body is in a state of anxiety, you forget to breathe, he says. But what about the innocent IT guy who's just plain nervous about being interviewed? 
You need to look for these symptoms and clusters and establish a baseline by starting out by asking non-threatening questions such as name, address, and so forth. If they start displaying these nervous symptoms, then you've established a baseline, but that can be, that can be used as a clue. Eye movement patterns are another clue. When asked to recall an event, a right-handed person actually remembering it typically shifts his or her eyes up and to the left, and a left-handed person up and to the right. Someone who's lying would generally look down. Over 90% of people communicate with their eyes, so using eye movement is an effective cue, Coate says. Verbal cues are another trick. The, the use of pronouns tell a lot about a person's guilt or innocence. Saying, I did this or that, tends to show truthfulness by associating yourself with it, Dixon says. When they start to distance themselves, like using the and no possessive pronouns, we try to take that into account as a possible sign of distracting themselves or distancing themselves from the event or point in time. Most people don't lie. They just don't tell you everything, Coates says. They modify their language to be deceptive. And if the interviewee avoids answering a direct question about his or her involvement in a data breach, try asking it again in a different way. Most people answer a question the second time it's asked, so repeat the question. Ask it a third time to get a response. If you need to, he says, be persistent. And if your insider threat suspect ends the interview with, that's all I know, or that's it, try this story reversal technique. Have them retell the story in reverse order, Coates says, by querying him about what happened right before the last point in time he recounted, and then before that, and so on. Lead them backwards, Coates says. This is a helpful technique to display contradictions in the subject's story. All of the main events and milestones should be the same if they are telling the truth. Sometimes, an interview ends up as an interrogation, depending on the investigator's role in the case. And that takes another set of skills. There are typically four or five hard-hitting, rapid-fire questions, Coates says. People who are lying usually can't think on their, on their feet. Everyone, at first, says they didn't do it. Say the person's name, and that will make him turn his head and look at you, and then continue talking faster than he can if you want to elicit a confession. You want to minimize the subject's involvement so it's easier for them to say, I did it. And some of the more seasoned criminals won't necessarily break under questioning. The key is preparation, as well as taking into account any cultural or other personal issues that could influence a response. And you have to get used to the fact that this could be a cat, and you have to get used to the fact that this could be a cat and mouse game. Code says, end quote. To this, I want to add some, some things from my experience as an investigator. It's very important to make sure that you get as many facts together as possible before you interview the suspect. Um, and also, during interview, it's important not to let the, put all your cards on the table. The suspect should know everything that you know. Your questions should be designed so that you are um, actually trying to substantiate the evidence that you have and leading the, leading the suspect down a path that gets you the information you need or the support you need for your evidence. Um, I can tell you, going to court, often with a just a, an unsubstantiated confession or an unsubstantiated um, statement is not going to make the case. You really need to have your case made, and you, 
you know, you can do it off of the confession if a person is willing to give it to you up front and you go out and substantiate what was said. But in many cases, or in most cases, you're going to end up making your, getting all your information together, planning your interview, and conducting the interview in a way that gets the, the uh, confession or the suspect to substantiate what happened in their own statement. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, um, I will be reading or presenting my paper on uh, uh, data content monitoring and filtering, uh, the challenges faced by businesses with their data spread out all over their, all over their enterprise and how they can get a handle on that. And um, this week, I, was, I hope I was able to help you make your network just a little bit safer. And until next time, be careful what you click. Thank you.